So hey guys, we're back and we have a brand new season. We are in season four. Um, we've been doing these now for, as you can tell, about four years. And uh, we've got a big archive. So please go back in the archive and listen uh, back to Mark Boardman and Nancy Sosa and all sorts of wonderful people that uh, and Peter Brand that started the podcast series. And we appreciate him a bunch. Of course, I want to thank my friends over at the Wild West History Association at WWHA. Uh, you can find them at wildwesthistory.org. I urge you to join and become a member. It's like 75 bucks um, a year. And you get the journal, and oh my gosh, you get so much deep research. The journal is like 100 plus pages, and uh, it gets delivered to your door. And the articles, there's like, there's no, there's no fillers. There's no ads for makeup or this or that or, you know, or cars. It's just 100% Wild West history. And please, I urge you to join at wildwesthistory.org. Of course, you can find the Wild West History Association on Facebook. Instagram, YouTube, and um, where else? And, and then on their website, they're just, they're everywhere. Uh, they're everywhere, and you can find them, and you can listen to them. Yeah, I think, like I said, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, they're just, they're everywhere, and, in the court, and including the website. So check them out at Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org. Of course, my friends at the Tombstone Epitaph, Arizona's longest-running newspaper. You can be a subscriber and get it delivered right to your door. It's 25 bucks a year or three years for 60 And I tell everybody to do three years because it saves $15 overall. And who doesn't, you know, who doesn't want to put 15 bucks in their pocket? And Mark Boardman and Eric Wright, they are killing it at the Epitaph. And you get 20 plus pages, this newspaper, and it's delivered right to your door. And Bob Bowes Bell and all sorts of amazing, wonderful writers and historians uh, are all in the Tombstone Epitaph. Again, Arizona's longest running newspaper at tombstoneepitaph.com. Now, you're a member of the WWHA, are you not, sir? I am. I'm a member of WWHA, and I was a member of WOLA and NOLA well, before they merged way well, back in the day. I'm glad you said that, because if you would have said no, I would have hung up on you. And I said, well, that's the shortest <laughs> interview And I subscribe to the epitaph. Now, if you're wondering who this handsome gentleman is on the phone, we have Michael Bell. Uh, do you go by Michael or Mike? I go by either. My uh, my mother used to call me Michael when I was in trouble, but um, either is fine by me. Okay, so we'll we have Mike Bell on the phone, uh, and I'll refer to him as both. Um, and and if you're wondering, I'm a Mike as well. And if you look it up, I and my wife, if she listened to this, is going to hate when I say this. If you look it up in the Bible, Michael means godlike. I'm sorry. Exactly. Um, Michael has an amazing history and background. And we're going to talk about it today as much as we can in the short amount of time we have. And if he likes the, the end result, I can hopefully I'm going to talk him into coming back and do it again. Uh, he's got, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, sir, I appreciate it if you do. He's got an, an extensive book history. Uh, he's written a book. One of them is called Incidents on Owl Creek, the new edition. Yep. Uh, who are those guys of Myths and Manhunters? The author and the outlaw, Butch Cassidy in Wyoming, Volume 1. Uh, the Butchers of Rock Springs, Butch Cassidy in Wyoming, which I can't believe because I've been to Rock Springs and it's a beautiful town. Uh, watching the Detectives, Outlaw Roots, 
Wyoming Outlaws, Butch Cassidy in Wyoming. Uh, the Day the Robbers Came, Old Men, uh, what is it, Old Men Forget, Butch Cassidy yep. in Wyoming, Volume 4, Butch and Sundance in South America, and then he's got a new book out, uh, After the Wild, actually, yeah, After the Wild Bunch, no, this is not a new book, After the Wild Bunch, and then he's got a new book out, which is Wyoming Outlaws, Butch Cassidy in Wyoming uh, from 1889 to 1896. We're going to talk about that one. And that one you can find on Amazon. It's 738 pages. And and we're going to talk a little bit about it and we're, as much as we can if after we talk about Michael. And that's 738 pages. And he notes on there that it's over 50 years of research, which is crazy because we talked about his age. He's 66. So that means he was starting in his teens and to the research of Bush Cassidy, and we're going to talk about how he got going into Western history. But you can find this book, Wyoming Outlaws, Butch Cassidy in Wyoming from 1889 to 1896 on Amazon. And so if you're listening in the UK, that's one of the best places to get this book because the shipping is almost nothing, and you can get it delivered right to your door. Now, welcome, sir. I appreciate you a bunch. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You you have a cool background because I've read some of your bio that you sent me and uh-huh. it says you were uh, you and, and if I if I mess this up please please you know it's it's cuz I'm across the pond um <laughs> born in Newcastle upon yeah. Tyne England Newcastle upon That's right. Tyne. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. I am from the north of England from a, a city that goes back to, well, well before William the Conqueror, back into the Roman era. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was born and raised there until my mid-20s when I left home. But, uh, yeah, it's a great city to come from, great city. Loads and loads of history there. Well, we, we spoke a little bit yesterday about his background because I have a friend who also is from the U.K., and he was telling me about the the music that he would listen to. And we talked to Michael yesterday, and we were talking about the Clash and the Sex Pistols and punk era. Like, he was there for that. And he got to listen to that. And, I, and I'm not saying that as a, a bad thing. I'm saying that as, like, I'm jealous because what a crazy time to live in the U.K. And the bands that we look at today as being classics and being, you know, so groundbreaking, you were listening to yeah. and going to see. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, well, when I was a kid, um, my mom, I shall say mom, because that's the American thing, isn't it, had um, one of those little portable record players. And um, I really wasn't into music much when I was that young. It was mainly my sisters, and they had some of the early 45s put out by the Beatles, you know, Twist and Shout and Paperback Writer and stuff like that. Um, so that's how I really got into um, rock and pop music. And um I'm really into, or was really into 70s music, you know, the Stones and uh, the Kinks mm-hmm. and uh, the Beatles and stuff like that. And then there were some great bands in Newcastle as well. There's a band called Lindisfarne that um, I guess American listeners may never have heard of, but uh, they were another classic band. And then you know, Nazareth, uh, those sorts of things. And um, as the years went by, I slowly slid into American music as well. I, re- I remember um, when I left university in Newcastle, I worked for a couple of years in a store and a, 
the guy in the store who worked with me was really into um, American music, and he he turned me on to Bob Seger and Bruce Springsteen and, and that sort of stuff. And um, then I sort of slid into country as well. Oh, yeah. um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think of names. I saw you, Brown. Half these guys are now. I, I, I know they're still going because I follow them on Facebook. But uh, So, yeah, you name it. I'm interested in it. And, and there, there was that really great era of early punk, you know, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, um, bands like that. That, of um, um, course... Records are making a comeback, aren't they? I right. mean, for a, a long time, I just had, uh, I got rid of what records I had and just had CDs. And then I dumped all of those a few years ago because um, it's all into streaming. But my wife still, my wife's uh, uh, more of an 80s uh, oh, uh, music cool. enthusiast. All right. um, well, we'll have to but do she a, loves a vinyl. We'll have to do a podcast with your wife. We'll talk about The Cure and, and yeah, stuff like that. by all means. Um, <laughs> as, but as you were growing up, A movie comes out called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah. And explain or share how this single movie changed you and has brought you down to, and and if I, if you go too long, I'll interrupt you because it's just because I will. But, uh, and if you were wondering, like I said, he's in, he's currently in England. We're calling on a digital line. So everything should be clear. But if you hear any, Pops, crackles, snaps, whatever. It's just because we're a long ways away. Yeah, or it's um, me drinking from my huge cup of tea. Exactly. Yeah. Well, to, to get to the Butch Cassidy movie, I need to go back a little bit because um, when I was a kid, I was really into history anyway, and I was fortunate in that my dad used to work for a publishing house, the Oxford University Press, and he would bring back from work... Um, kids history books for me so i was really into english history medieval history um, and roman history for many many years and then when i was in high school i had a history teacher uh, long since dead now a guy called jack McEwen, who got me into um uh, american frontier history and, and he managed to get hold of copies of some of what are now regarded as classics um you know stuart lakes wired up um, uh, Harry Sinclair Drago's books, Paul Wellman, people like that, um, all of which were fascinating. So by the time we got to the 19, late 1960s, two things um, were sort of imprinted on my mind. One was I thought I knew about most of um, the Old West characters, you know, the outlaws and bad men and lawmen of that sort of era. Second thing, however, was I didn't think anybody could or would write anything about them from a serious academic perspective because all of the material I had was from that 50s era when people were writing for popular consumption and weren't really that bothered about... Um, I was going to say rigor. I don't mean that they were doing a poor job at all, but they were collecting stories and narratives. Then one day I'm standing on a station in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, not a street corner in Arizona, unlike the Eagles, Mm -hmm. and there was a poster for this movie, Butch Cassidy, and I'd never heard of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And I went along to see it. I was 13. I went along to see it. Um, There was a birthday present from a friend of mine. But this is in the era where you went to the movie theatre and the, the movie just ran and ran. And, you know, you, you went in at the start and then you could sit there all afternoon if you liked. 
And we got there just about the wrong time. It was about, I don't know, 20 minutes from the end. So the, the, the usher read on the door, so that, you know, we were looking forlorn and bereft and you know, lost souls, me and my friend. And she said, OK, you guys can go in and watch the end of this. Well, if you watch the end of Butch Cassidy, the movie first, before the rest of it, it sort of spoils the plot, really, because you know what's going to happen. But I'd never heard of these two guys. You know, who are these outlaws from the 20th century? You know, I thought that uh, American Western outlaws and bad men and so forth were you know, the 1870s, 1880s. So that got me looking into Butch and Sundance. That got me through my high school teacher, who got me into the subject in the first place, writing to libraries and bookstores in America. And um, I began to build up a collection of books on them. But again, they were they were of their era. So there was you know, Charles Kelly's book on Butch Cassidy, which is largely a collection of anecdotes. There was uh, Pearl Baker's book on the Wild Bunch at Robber's Roost. Um, a few books of that sort, which, which by the time we get to the... 70s i guess i thought i'd learned all there was to know about these two guys you know they they sundance is born in pennsylvania in about 1867 butch is born in utah in 1866 um and they die in south america in 1908 end the subject and then um i went back to university having done a history degree the first time and um by that time i discovered the work of a guy called Larry Ball, who fortunately is still with us. Larry Ball was, I think he was Alabama or um, maybe Arkansas. You'll forgive me anyway, because I met him in Cheyenne back in, uh, a couple of years ago. He had done two books, very well-written, brilliantly researched books on marshals, one on the marshals of New Mexico and Arizona, um, New Mexico Territory, one on Arizona. And they were an example of how you could write and research and publish on American frontier history, specifically outlaw lawman history, without it just being a lightweight production. Um, and that's what got me thinking, well, there must be a way of going about this, of, of getting into um, outlaw lawman history in a, in a more robust way, in, in the way that is now typified by the Wild West History Association. You look at the quality of the, the material they publish. Um, you've said it before in your, in your other podcasts, Mike. You know, every quarter you get a magazine the size of a book with really well-researched res and um, usually well-written articles as well on the frontier. So I thought, well, it, so it can be done. Um, and about that time... A guy called Larry Pointer, who I think is still living, did a book on Butch Cassidy called In Search of Butch Cassidy. And he was convinced that um, a small-time outlaw called Bill Phillips, who'd been in prison with Cassidy in the 1890s, was in fact Cassidy. And Phillips returned to Wyoming in the 20s and 30s and managed to persuade various people he was the return to Cassidy. And that has led to a whole industry around did Butch die in South America, did he come back? and all of that. So again, by about mid-1970s, 78, 79, I thought, well, that's it. This is, there's nothing left to know about these two guys. But then it began to dawn on me that um, most of the work I had on Cassidy missed out great chunks of his life. So um, his sister, Lula Bettinson, um, did a book on him 
in the 70s where she talks about him leaving home from Utah. Jumps almost straight into his outlaw career. Um, robs a bank in Telluride, Colorado in 1889 and then um, jumps from there into train robberies, bank robberies in the mid-1890s. That's when it began to dawn on me there were gaps in his career that hadn't really been explored. Um, and what really focused it for me was uh, a book by a guy called Richard Patterson, who did a biography of Butch, must, ooh, was that late 80s, early 90s, can't remember. Um, and he talked about how Butch got into outlawry um, and how in the early 1890s he was arrested for horse theft and thrown in jail. And that's what led me to think, well, there are years and years of this outlaw's life that haven't really been explored. And at the same time, um, going back to the Kelly work and other things, it began to dawn on me that a lot of what we think we know about Cassidy wasn't really contemporaneous. It was drawn from recollections of people who said they knew him, some of whom did, some of whom didn't, but those stories were collected much later. When Charles Kelly was writing his first book in the 1930s, he wrote around to people and he travelled to Wyoming and talked to people. And the problem with that sort of research is if you wander into a bar in Wyoming in the 1930s and say, I'm looking for material on Butch Cassidy, then everybody who's in need of a drink is going to belly up to the bar and say, yeah, I knew Butch Cassidy. I can tell you about old Butch. So... What we had was both a partial history of Cassidy the Outlaw and a not very objective history of Cassidy the Outlaw. And that's what then led me into thinking, well, I need to go, I need to go back to America, uh, um, start doing some serious research. And um, the Larry Ball work, for example, when I... Um, decided I want to go back into higher education in about 1978. I applied to do a master's degree and um, I thought what I'll do is I'll persuade some professor to let me have a serious go at some outlaw history, Wyoming outlaw history. And I'll take along to my interview these books by Larry Ball and I'll say, look, this is how it can be done. You know, there's now a, a, a track record, a provenance of, of serious historians having a go at this subject which so far has been confined to popular television shows and movies and so on. Um, and part of my thesis was, or part of my argument was, uh, the Old West isn't that old, and I still think that. I'm still in, you know, being contacted by people whose grandparents or great-grandparents um, were some of these key characters. So I went into this interview um, to do this degree, and the guy who I was going to be working under was um, a German refugee left Germany just after the Second World War, or just before the Second World War, on a kinder transport. And I made my pitch about doing something around um, outdoor history in Wyoming. And he looked over his glasses at me and he said, well, Michael, I don't think so. You will study the Berlin crisis of 1948. Oh, okay, thanks very much. So if you want to know anything about the Berlin airlift, I'm your man. Exactly. But the... Um, the outcome of that was, first of all, I got a really good grounding in uh, history and research. And more importantly, the guy said to me, um, well, you can work for me, but you're going to have to go to America. 
And I thought, well, it'd be rude to leap to my feet and clap my hands and skip around his office. And I said, oh, really? Do I have to? He said, yes, you're going to have to go to Kansas City, Missouri, um, because Harry Truman, president uh, in the 40s, his presidential library is there. So you're going to have to go to the Truman Library and spend a couple of months doing research. And my little brain's thinking, well, yeah, I'll do that, but I'm going to be going to Kansas City to look at the libraries there. I'm going to be going to look for outlaw sites in Missouri and Kansas. Um, so I did do the research in the Truman Library. I may have made a detour via Coffeeville and various other outlaw places. And I may have done some research in Kansas City on the death of um, an outlaw called Lonnie Logan, the brother of Kid Curry. Um, and from there, I then sadly had to spend nearly a year working in the archives in Washington, D.C. And again, I'd split my time between doing research on my formal thesis topic and doing research on outlaw history. And that really began a process by which for, I don't know, I've lost count of the number of times I've been back to Wyoming in the States, but it, it's more than 30 trips now. And slowly but surely, I began to go back and um, uncover more of what I call Cassidy's lost years between about 1889 and 96, hence the title of the book, which really hadn't been covered at all. And it turned out there were all sorts of myths and legends in there. So, for, for example, um, in Patterson's book, books, he talks about Butch being sold horses um, at a, a ranch um, in the foothills of the Owl Creek Mountains, a place called Mail Camp. And you can still go there. The ranch is still there as it was when Cassidy was there. But Patterson said that Butch bought these horses from a guy called Billy Nutcher, who was also known as Billy Joe Nutcher. And I began to look into that, and that's totally untrue. There, there was a family of Nutcher brothers, um, English descendants, who'd come out to Wyoming from uh, Pennsylvania in the 1870s via um, Nebraska. And they were all part of a horse thief gang. So slowly but surely, what, what has evolved has been me doing deep dives into bits of Cassidy's life where what we've had so far have been myth, legend and anecdote um, that have become sort of accepted as fact. Now, some of, those, some of those stories do stand up, but a lot of them just fall away. Um, and there's also there's a ton of new material. So, for example, you mentioned the author and the outlaw which was, is one of the three books that are collected together in Wyoming Outlaws. And um, the legends tell us that after Butch robbed a bank in Telluride, Colorado in um, 1889, he and a couple of other outlaws rode north into Wyoming and they spent the winter on Horse Creek, which is where the town of Dubois now is. And I began to dig into that and found all sorts of accounts that, um, without going into extreme minutiae they both support and destroy various stories about Cassidy at the time but it turns out yes he was on Horse Creek he wasn't running a ranch of his own as some people say he was dealing in stolen horses um, and there's a whole saga I, mean, I would wouldn't I recommend the little book to you because it tells you a lot about that phase of his life but while I was working in the archive in Laramie um I don't know why, but for some reason I began looking at material on Owen Wister, who wrote the first serious Western book, The Virginian. Um, and they hold his diaries. Now, Wister, before he became famous, travelled regularly to the West, to the Wind River area, um, 
to what is now Dubois. He, he um, got the train to Rawlins, got the stagecoach up to Fort Sharkey, and then um, rode up to the Wind River and where Dubois now is. And again, longish story short, when you stitch together the analysis of where Cassidy was in the winter of 1889-1890, there are only two cabins on the Wind River or on Horse Creek at the time, one of which was the post office, one of which was being built by a guy called Huey Humans. And all the evidence is that Cassidy and one of his friends helped Humans finish the cabin. In the fall of 1889, Owen Whitster wanders up to um, Horse Creek, and you can you can go into the uh, the archive in Cheyenne, uh, not Cheyenne and Laramie, and look at his pencil written journals. And in there, he says, "We stayed at the post office with a guy called Charlie Smith, and we played cards. And the guys from the the nearby cabin came in, and we we, we had a good time with them. And then he says something about um, one of his friends." Uh, taking him up the, the creek to look at some land this guy wanted Owen Wister to buy for him. And he says, we walked past this cabin, and there were two guys finishing off this cabin. And it suddenly dawned on me, Owen Wister saw Butch Cassidy. Butch Cassidy saw Owen Wister. At the time, neither of them was famous. Wister was going through all sorts of anguish about whether he should give up his law practice and uh, go into writing articles and books and so forth. And Cassidy was hiding out. He'd just robbed a bank six months earlier in Telluride, Colorado, and was um, establishing himself as a horse thief. So the, that's the sort of thing I love doing, these deep dives into bits of his life that have been overlooked in the previous histories, just to, to see what the, there is to be found. And what I find is there is still a wealth of material out there you just got to go looking for it. It's buried in courthouses, it's buried in archives, it's buried in old recollections of guys who really did know him at the time when he was a, a prominent outlaw between 1896 and the mid-1900s um, and beyond. But, um, but let me ask you. Oh, sorry, you want to get a word in edgeways, Mike? No. I do apologize. No, no, no. You, it's the longest answer <laughs> You ask yet. the question while I drink some tea. No, it's okay. You're, you're finding it, out this it. well because there's so much. I'm writing stuff down as you're talking. Butch yeah. Cassidy, I don't even know where the answer questions because I got like a million questions. As you're researching this stuff and you're making these trips back and forth, you you noted that Wyoming was one of your favorite states. Yeah, it is. Why not move here? Why not come here? Well, because that you you're doing so much research, and you're you're going to the archives. Why not come here and and move here? Like, why didn't you say to yourself, "I need to be here full time"? Well, a, a long, long time ago, I did consider that way back in the early 1980s when I just um, got my doctorate. I thought, well, what I will do now is I will um, move to America, particularly the West. And I will, you know, rather than um, research the post-war American and British foreign policy in Germany, fascinating though that is, I will devote my time to researching and writing about not just Cassidy, but the, the whole centers that revolve overlooked. The problem was at the time to do that, you had to get a so-called green card. And the only way of getting one 
for a historian was to get it through a lottery because mm. I, I know we may feel differently, but apparently at the time the State Department took the view that um, madcap English historians who wanted to write about the wild bunch and which Cassidy were not really a skill set they were looking for. So I did seriously consider it, but I never got a green uh, a green card through the lottery. And then uh, I then had to start working. Um, and for a while I thought, well, I'll try and get an academic post in the UK. But this was the, the mid-80s. This was you know, Margaret Thatcher's depression and all of that sort of stuff. And it was really hard to get academic work unless you were in the sciences. So in the end, I ended up joining the English, the British Civil Service, working for various government agencies. And it got to the point where it was going to be too hard to jump out of that, take the risk of jumping out of that and resettling in the United States with you know, nothing behind me and no money. And then I married my wife and we had a daughter and all of that. And, you know, uh, I wouldn't trade them for anything. I, you know, if anybody said you've got to give up Butch Cassidy or that, then I'm afraid Butch would go you know, within a heartbeat. So I, I, I sort of made a deal with myself that I would do what I needed to do in the UK to make enough money to allow me to travel back to the United States at that time once or twice a year to do the research I wanted to do. And um, even though things have got easier now, like you know, I'm sitting here looking at a computer screen which has newspaper archives open and ancestry files open to various people, there's, even today there's only so much of that you can do from here. There is nothing beats standing on the ground, uh, Owl Creek, Wyoming, for example, where Cassidy was for a year in one of his forgotten years when he was, there's all sorts of legal cases about horse theft and so forth and basically a local rancher ruined him to make sure he didn't um, carry on his horse theft activities but it, it came back to me again and again that um, I remember walking down Owl Creek one time or given that the ground was soaking I was probably walking in Owl Creek and I was thinking I am cold I am wet it is raining there is snow on the ground my fingers don't work anymore but this is the best thing this is the stuff I really enjoy because Butch Cassidy rode here. In this pasture, Butch Cassidy kept his horses and his cattle. And these are the events people don't yet know about that made Butch Cassidy the man he is or was. And there's a rumour he's... Um, I, I still back when I can. I, um, it costs a heck of a lot more these days because of the you know, cost of living and, and the pound has you know, gone down the toilet compared to the dollar. So it's... Uh, it's just a lot more expensive. But, um, and there is still material that you cannot find anywhere else. You've got to go into the archives in Cheyenne or in Laramie or to a courthouse in Bighorn or wherever to find material. And um, it's, it's the serendipity. I was, when I was in um, Cheyenne about 10 years ago now in the archives, I was, doing, I was looking into court cases. And again, nothing beats opening an envelope with the, the, you know, the, the fragile uh, manuscripts of court cases that haven't been seen for nearly 100 years. You think, oh, wow, this, is, this was touched by people who you know, I know about and read about. And I'd been working in there for, a, I don't know, I think I was there for a week on that trip. I'd gone through all these court cases, and one of the archivists, because by this time I'd got to know him pretty well, came over and said, you might not be interested, but um, we've got this big leather-bound volume of um, Justice of the Peace records from a little town called Embar. It doesn't exist anymore. It's just a few crumbling buildings. He said, you might be interested in that because that's just outside Thermopolis, which is a um, 
it's now the capital of Hot Springs County, but it was in, then in um, Fremont County. And that's where Cassidy and various people were hanging around in the mid-18 or the early 1890s. So I said, yeah, bring it up. Let me have a look. Um, and page after page of this ledger is about the horse theft cases and the cattle theft cases that were brought against Cassidy initially. But then when he was railroaded by a, a local judge um, and this guy, this horse thief he was working with, Billy Nutcher, borrowed a load of money from various people and fled and all his property was impounded but it was all mixed up with Cassidy's stuff and Cassidy spent a year trying to recover his property and that was never going to happen these guys he had a reputation by then as a horse thief they weren't going to let him do it now none of that material is as yet online I would never have come across that I thought I knew what I was looking for in the archives in Cheyenne um, and it was only by pure luck that um this document came to right, came to light, and that's what became the basis of the book Incidents on Owl Creek. Because until that point, nobody knew Cassidy had spent any time on Owl Creek. Mm. And there was another occasion. I was in. Um, um, somebody told me there was a little book about the Occidental Hotel in uh, Buffalo, and we had a Wola conference in Buffalo about 1997, something like that. Great little town in uh, northern central Wyoming. Um, Part of the Johnson County War and all of that sort of history. So um, the hotel registers are now in the American Heritage Center in Laramie. So I, I went there and this little book said they thought there was one signature of Butch Cassidy in this hotel register. And everybody said, nah, it's a, it's a fake. Somebody's written it in later on after the event, to, you know, to give some publicity to the hotel. So I thought, well, the only way to test this is to go along and have a look myself and mm -hmm. The archivists brought out these huge hotel registers between about 1888 and 1890-something. And um, I spent two days going through these things. And at one point, one of the archivists, because you're in a reading room where you, you, know, you only take pencils in, they keep a mind you to make sure you don't try and you know, screw anything away. This woman said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I am. I'm just finding so much in here. And... Um, on that trip, I was meeting a guy called Bill Bettinson. Now, Bill Bettinson is Butch Cassidy's great-great-nephew. He's descended from Lula Bettinson, who was Butch's younger sister, one of his younger sisters. And Bill's done a couple of books on Butch. And really nice guy. Bill takes the view that Butch died in South America. I'm a bit more skeptical, but we agree to disagree, and we share research and so forth. So he invited me over to, to see him in his, um, north, his, with his family north of Salt Lake over there having done a few other things and uh, I told him I was going to go to this archive in Laramie and he said to me did you find anything and I said Bill you know that little book we were looking at they said there was one signature from Butch Cassidy he said yeah and I said well they were wrong and his face fell a bit and he, he clearly thought well this mad Englishman's come all this way and found me nothing and I said there aren't there isn't one signature by Butch Cassidy there are 14 signatures by Butch Cassidy there are dozens of signatures by people we know he rode with, other horse thieves and other people in his life. So Bill's been back there himself now. We found signatures by Billy Nutcher, this, other, this fellow horse thief, by other guys who were murdered during the horse thief war of 1892-94. Um, there's a guy called Al Hayner, who was Butch's partner on Horse Creek. He appears in, the, in the, the hotel registers. And from that, we found records that suggest that Butch and Hayner went across to Pine Ridge 
in the fall of um, 1890. Now, that's at the time of the ghost dance and the rising of the wounded knee fight. This guy, Heiner, may have served as a courier um, after, in and around the wounded knee battle. So, again, all this material, no matter how much you can get online at the moment, that wouldn't have happened had I not had to go to Laramie and, and delve into these books. And I read the first volume and I thought, well, there's nothing in here. I might as well stop. And I thought, no, I'll just give it a go. I'll keep going. And then page after page, it shows that Butch was there um, racing horses in Sheridan and Buffalo in the fall of 1890. And all sorts of other characters that we didn't really know about or mentioned once or twice in some of the early histories came to life. There's a, um, uh, a Mexican-American guy called Manuel Armenta who is uh, born in Mexico in the late 1850s, ends up in Wyoming. And in some of the early histories, he might get an, a one-name mention, maybe. Turns out he and Cassidy and other guys are uh, racing horses. They're, they're traveling around the county fairs in northern Wyoming, racing horses in 1889, 1890 to 1891. Um, he had his own career as a minor bad man. But um, turns out he was also possibly involved in one of the train robberies that's attributed to Cassidy in the late 1890s, the Wilcox train robbery of 1899. Um, so every time I delve into one of these things, I come away squealing with joy because I find, I always find something and that something leads me to something else. And those something else has enabled me to fill in another bit of the jigsaw that is the outlaw Bush Cassidy. So and if the you're, other thing, that, hold on. sorry, go ahead. I have to. Give, I have to remind the listener who were listening, or the who were listening okay. to. Uh, we are listening to uh, Michael Bell. He, you can find his latest book, Wyoming Outlaws: Butch Cassidy in Wyoming from 1889 to 1896 on Amazon. Uh, it is not a fast read. It is <laughs> 738 pages, and it's basically 50 years of research. So if you're going into this new book, thinking you're going to breeze through it in a couple of weeks or a week or so, like there's too much information in it on a book that size. I haven't seen it, but there's too much information on a book that size to, to go through really fast. Like for me, I, I, yeah. I compare it to anthology. Anthology took me, wide Earp Anthology yeah. took me a yeah. long time to and that, read. That's actually, I reread because pages. as you said at the start, Mike, it, it was a combination of, um, Incidents on Owl Creek, which was a standalone right. book. The Author and the Outlaw, which is about Cassidy and Owen Wister. The Butchers of Rock Springs, which is about the, how there are legends that Butch worked in a butcher shop in Rock Springs, and that's the analysis of that. Plus various other articles. So it's it's a it's more akin to the Wyatt Earp anthology right. volume. Um, and I do need to. I mean, only today, in the last couple of days, I've been talking to a lady who's a descendant of one of the early ranches on the Yellowstone up in Montana. Um, and, and that rancher was one of the ones who kicked off the horse thief war in 1892. Because um, at that point, Cassidy and others were stealing horses by the hundreds. And the Wyoming and Montana ranchers just ran out of patience. And they sent out, quote unquote, posses to deal with the horse theft problem. At the same time as the Johnson County War. So the horse thief war has tended to be overshadowed. Um, by the uh, Johnson County War, but um, but you know, you so Wyoming that. Outlaws is a, is a collection of mm -hmm. material, um, and I keep updating it. I mean, I'll do a third edition at some point because I've just discovered so much more information. 
Well, I'm kind of glad, too, you mentioned about the Occidental because my wife and I drove by it. Yeah. Uh, we saw it, and but it was closed. And oh. we were like, oh, <laughs> so we're going to have to make a trip back. In in all of your research, because we only have about 20 minutes left, maybe 15 sure. minutes left. Um, most researchers, writers, historians that I speak to will say that they're researching a certain subject and then they find another thing like the Billy... Billy Netcher, yeah, and yeah. all these people have have you thought about as you're researching and all these other names and stuff pop up about writing about them, or is it just because you've got so much about Butch Cassidy to tell that there's just not enough time in the day? Well, I try and do both, in that um, one of the reasons that Wyoming Outlaws is the size of a house brick mm-hmm. is because. Um, when I first qualified as a historian, my professor, the guy who made me do the Berlin crisis, he said, um, you'll find there's lots of stories to tell, Mike. Tell the main story in your main narrative and you can tell the other stories in your endnotes. And, and, and he said, what I want to see in your endnotes is the material to put whatever it is in your main narrative. So I, I do try and flesh out the histories of some of the people um, in and around Cassidy, partly because they're intrinsically interesting in their own right. You know, having got into this, even if I wasn't researching Cassidy, I'd still be fascinated by the, the guys who settled the, the Bighorn Basin and the Yellowstone Valley in Montana. Um, and that happened well after Frederick Jackson Turner, famous historian, said the frontier was over. Well, nobody told the guys in southern Montana and northern Wyoming. They just carried on settling the land. Um, so I, I do tend to write about those guys. But that's also why um, in the other books, Old Men Forget and um, After the Wild Bunch. After the Wild Bunch is actually the most recent one. It's not on Amazon yet, but you can get it from lulu.com. That's more about the guys who were associated with Cassidy um, at the time of his pomp in the 1890s and early 1900s. Um, So After the Wild Bunch, for example, I was... When I finished Wyoming Outlaws, which it takes us from North America down to South America, and then I did a little book on South America, and I'd point you towards Dan Buck's work on South America. That's just exceptional. So I thought, well, I'm done with that line of story. But then it occurred to me, well, what about all the guys who didn't go to South America? You know, there's, there's Elsie Lay was one of Cassidy's friends. Um, Tom O'Day rode with him. Um, there's a half a dozen guys. Uh, who were part of the outlaw gangs in and around Thermopolis in the 1890s, who never left the area. They also were very slow learners. So (laughs) at least two of them get killed by either jealous wives or other outlaws, whatever. And then there's there's a guy I'd never heard of, a guy called Stanley Miller. Um, He's got a whole history on the Montana-Wyoming line that links up with Cassidy and some of Cassidy's friends. And um, as late as 1911... He, he had saloons and, and stores and so forth at the Thermopolis. But in 1911, he and a couple of other guys ride into um, Harlem, Montana, which is way up on the High Line, not far south of the Canadian border. And they clearly haven't got the, the memo that the, the Wild West is over because they, they stick up the bank. But the, the local marshal is uh, on the other side of the street watching this go on, and he sees these clowns go into the bank. He goes in the back door and he comes across this guy in the hallway with a pistol. And this is, you know, this is not Hollywood by any means. The marshal just guns down the, the, um, the bank robber. 
So you, you get people like Stanley Miller, who's really never been written about before, but who's part of a whole network of criminals. And many of them progress. The, one of the other themes in After the Wild Bunch is um, horse theft carries on. It's not just Dander Butch Cassidy. There's a guy called Tom O'Day, who Larry Ball has written an extensive article about in the annals of Wyoming. He keeps on stealing horses until 1904, 1905 and beyond. And at one point, the judge says to him, look, Tom, give it up. You should have stopped stealing horses when the rest of us did. And he means the rest of us. It was you know, a common thing. But they slide from horse theft. Um, crime just carries on. They, 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 they move from horse theft to running booze, to running gambling when it's illegal way up into the 1920s. So there are all these other characters who uh, you know, uh, who revolve around Cassidy, who are just as fascinating, um, who I wanted to write about and still do. And there is just that risk. Much of them, even though Cassidy and Sundance Kid and Ben Kilpatrick and Kid Curry are all fascinating in their own right. Um, one of my theses is that they got publicity because the Pinkerton Agency was brought in by the American Bankers Association and the Union Pacific to deal with them. So they bigged up these guys as the big bad men. Um, they inflated their reputations. They attributed crimes to them that they never committed um, and ignored some other guys. Now, when you strip that away, all of that stuff away, then you're left with Cassidy as one among many equals, equally bad men, but to be fair to Cassidy, he was a thief, um, but he was not a violent man. Uh, only if, if you accept the thesis he died in South America, it's only right at the end of his life um, in San Vicente in November 1908 when he kills anybody. And the, the stories, which initially I thought must be false about him being a likable guy and all of that, um, when you read the recollections of people who knew the man, um, that that turns out to be genuinely true. That he he was he was a, a lovable rogue. Unfortunately, lovable rogues are also criminals. Holy. So yes, I have tried to delve into and still try to delve into some of these other characters. And, and in fact, that's what took me to do the little book on who are those guys. There's a, there's a great sequence in the movie where Paul Newman and Robert Redford are being chased by the Union Pacific posse, and it's great fiction but terrible history. The Union Pacific posse of which there are you know, photographs in many books, wasn't formed until 1902, which is the year after Butch and Sundance have left the country. And um, the famous photographs, you can see them standing in front of their boxcar with the horses, and there's one of them taking the horses up into the car and all of that sort of stuff. Um, the Union Pacific didn't form the, the bandit hunters until 1902, and they had disappeared by about 1905. But the UP kept the stories going. That Every now and again, they'd feed the press another story about the bandit hunters protecting the bandit belt from Cheyenne to, uh, to Evanston. And to be fair, it worked. There, was, there wasn't another major train robbery on the Union Pacific line, on that line, for another decade or more. But of course... You know, um, bandit hunters prevent robbery from happening isn't as good a headline or doesn't make for a good movie as opposed to bandit hunters chase outlaws and kill several of them, which is what happens in the movie. So I'm, I'm always about trying to sort of both find new characters and new things that haven't been written about as much as about trying to untangle the myth and the legend of Cassidy and his fellow characters from the facts of what happened. It, I could listen to him for like two hours. I could listen to you. <laughs> Uh, we need a Michael Bell channel. If you guys are wondering, we're talking to Michael Bell. You can get his book, 
uh, Wyoming Outlaws, Butch Cassidy in Wyoming, um, 1889 to 1896 on Amazon. Uh, today's podcast has been a long time coming. If you guys are wondering, uh, we've had multiple uh, schedule dates and multiple cancellations. And uh, will you come back again? I'd be happy to come back oh. again, Mike. As you may have gathered, I can talk the hind legs off a donkey if necessary. You, you can. I've got a bunch of questions and I'm trying to interject the question and then you go right on by me. Um, <laughs> which is okay. I don't mind it because I'm, I'm fascinated by everything. We've got, I, I'm going to ask a question. If okay. you can somehow keep it at six minutes. Okay. And if you can't, then I understand. Where did he die? Did they really die in Argentina? Oh. Now, and, and I'm, the reason I'm asking this, and if listen, you can do one of two things. You can say, Mike, it's too long of an answer, and we're going to have to go to next time because we've only got about five minutes left. Yeah, yeah. If yeah. you say that, then we'll, we'll continue on. If you say, Mike, I can, I can do this because I'm going to have listeners saying, why didn't you ask that question? Well, you can do both, actually, because I, I hopefully have a major piece of work that the Wild West History Association might publish maybe this year um, that analyzes the lives of some of the people who others claim were butchered sometimes when they came back and demolishes those arguments. So there's three points I'll try and do quickly. One, um, it's entirely legitimate for other historians to argue that they came back from South America and survived, that they weren't at San Vicente. Well, my friend Bill Bettinson, um, in his books, he cannot point to uh, a returned Butch by name, but he does believe the family stories that Butch came back and visited with his family in Utah in 1925. Um, and that's an entirely honorable and acceptable position to adopt. There are other people who will tell you that Butch came back and they'll give you all sorts of, what's a polite term for that stuff that comes out the back end of a cow? Um, anyway, that, that stuff needs seriously challenging and that's what I'm trying to do in this other piece of work. Personally, I believe they died in South America, but I cannot prove it. What I can do is point to a growing body of evidence that they were, um, that their, their deaths were known about within a couple of months of them happening, and the men who died in San Vicente on the night of the 6th to 7th November 1908 were named as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, the bodies were probably dumped into the local cemetery, but it's only a probably because we don't know what happened. Um, there's no way of finding them. Uh, there was an expedition that tried to do it in the 80s, but... God knows where they might be in a cemetery. They may never have been buried there. But there's a wealth of circumstantial evidence about the guys who robbed um, a, a payroll train, about the men who were killed at some... or actually committed suicide. That's one of the other things. Um, if it was them, and I believe it was, then Sundance was badly wounded, but shot Sundance and then shot himself. So they didn't run out into a courtyard in sunshine and die, you know, mown down by the Bolivian army. But that might be a topic to come back to. So my personal belief is I think they died in South America. And so far, I've yet to see um, a persuasive case that says they definitely came back. That's not to say I haven't seen a reasoned case, but I've not yet seen a reasonable case that they came back. Well, you did it. 
you actually I got did some it. time. Yeah, you did well, it. Well, that's the first. It's, you should be my wife. She always says to me, what have you discovered today? And she says, give me the brief version. And if I go beyond about a couple of phrases, she said, nope, that's it. Stop. Too much information. <laughs> well, can I do that then? The next time we talk, can I say, nope, you can. too much? You okay. can. Um, is there, s- I've asked this question before and I'm going to ask you because I think it's, it, you, you could, uh, you could answer it shortly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if I put Michael Bell in the time machine. Yeah. Sent you back. Where would yeah. you go? Oh. And why? Well, it, it, at least your previous question, the obvious place to go would be to go to San Vicente, Bolivia on the night of 6th, 7th, November 1908, when the two guys who many people believe were Butch and Sundance um, died there. And that would resolve that question once and for all. But then there are so many other parts of his life and so many mysteries in his life. Um, I, you know, I, I got into this whole before thing, which I, you know, there's a whole agenda there about this major war that kills nine people. It's completely overlooked because of the Johnson County War. I'd like to go back, if I had a second trip in the TARDIS, I would go back to that meeting with Billy Nutcher, August 1891, um, in Mail Camp Ranch, and I've been there and stood in, the, in the, the corral and thought this is where it happened. I'd want to know what really happened there. Did Butch genuinely get sold horses he didn't know were stolen, or was were Billy and Butch part of the same gang and they were just passing stolen horses from one guy to the other and creating fake bills of sale? So if anybody ever got caught, they could say, well, there's my bill of sale. You know, I just bought them innocently. So I'd love to know about that. Was this... Um, was was Butch genuinely caught in something bigger than himself or was he really, as I believe, part of a horse thief gang? Um, and we haven't talked about Kid Curry. No, One of the books is about Kid Curry. I'd love to go back to Gibson's Gulch in uh, June 1904. Was it really Kid Curry who committed suicide up there? Mm-hmm. I think so, but I, you know, same as Butch and Sundance in South America. Definitively proving it is tough. Right. Well, we've got Michael Bell. Um, you can find all his books we've talked about. Um, you don't have a website or anything to get the other books. Uh, Amazon is a spot. Don't. Where else can they go? You can, yeah, they're all on... Um, I'm a member of the English Westerner Society, which has been around since 1954. And um, we publish through a website called lulu.com. Oh, okay. So if you go to lulu.com and drop in my name, you will... There are a couple of other Mike Bells on there doing, I don't know, self-help books or whatever. And you might need that if you've read one of mine. But you'll find on lulu.com, you'll find all the other books. And as you say on Amazon, you'll find The Day the Raiden Robbers Came, which is about um, Kid Curry. And you'll find Wyoming Outlaws. Okay, fair enough. So we have Michael Bell. And you can, like I said, lulu.com and Amazon. Um like you said also in a previously that he's got some possibly some articles coming up in the WWHA. And if you want to get those, the only way, really, the only way you can get that is becoming yep. a member by going to wildwesthistory.org. And, uh, and then, of course, the Wild West History Association is everywhere on social media. Thank you to my friend David Guyton. He's over there running the Instagram page. And so we've got history just coming at you from all over. Uh, we'll schedule Michael as soon as possible. Uh, come back soon. We've got we've got a bunch of people scheduled. I I don't want to say their names because I don't want to get people, um, you know, 
worked up over them or not worked up, but ready to go. And then unfortunately there's a cancellation, but we've got a lot of podcasts coming up. We're already booking into April and May, if that helps you with what's coming up. And, uh, there are going to be some fantastic podcasts and interviews as always, please. You can find me on iTunes, uh, iHeartRadio app, Spotify, please hit the subscribe and or follow button. You can also find the podcast on YouTube at Cochise County underscore travels. Uh, people will sometimes say, Mike, how do I get a hold of you? Please go to Facebook page at Cochise County underscore travels. It's a closed group, but I'll let you write in and you can message me there. You can also find me on Messenger. Uh, you can also find me on my Instagram page at Cochise County underscore travels. And that's a lot of my personal travels and where I go and the things I see because I travel a lot for work. And um, I'm always posting stuff there about Western history. So you, there's a lot of stuff going on. And uh, if you need any information about Michael, that's probably one of the best ways to do it is to go through uh, Facebook. And of course, I appreciate you guys a bunch. Uh, until next time. Safe travels, uh, keep listening, and we'll see you soon.